I'm getting just a touch of feedback here. I don't know, maybe it's this one. Well, the title of this morning's sermon is Truth and Love. Truth and Love. And you think about two words like that, truth and love, and it made me think about things that go well together. They just simply go well together, pairs of things. And so you could have a lot of different examples. Maybe if I gave you a minute to put a list together, you'd come up with some things that are different than what came to my mind. But as I was thinking about things that go together, and we're going to see that truth and love are inseparable, they go together. But other examples, I thought of fall weather and flannel shirts. They just go together. Or peanut butter and jelly. Like some people have a peanut butter sandwich. I don't understand them. Some people have just jelly on their sandwich. I don't understand it. Peanut butter and jelly were meant to go together. Or how about movies and popcorn? You know, there's some people that just that's their thing. They realize that when they're watching a a television show or a movie, it's a perfect time to have popcorn or macaroni and cheese. You know, there are those who have just noodles with butter. I don't understand you. I really don't. Or how about s'mores and campfires? Or guitars and singing? Or salty things and sweet things like Pearson's nut rolls? Or how about cheeseburgers without fries? You know, it's things that go together. They naturally go together. Well, naturally, there's other things that don't go so well together. And examples that came to my mind as I was thinking about the alternative there is sandals and socks. I was thinking of you, Summer. Redheads and sunshine. A nice lady reminded me of that when I was in Hawaii. Just walking along the beach, kind of minding our own business. And the lady, as she walked by, she said, Boy, you two are pale looking. (laughs) I mean, who says that to someone? I mean, is it true? Yes, it's true. Clearly, I'm not built for the sun. But do you have to say it out loud? (laughs) That would have been enough other than she took it one step farther and she said, if you continue down the beach a little bit further, there's this little bit of a rock outcropping with a little waterfall coming out of it. And it's shady there all day long. That would be a perfect place for you two. (laughs) Man, man, man. So between being told I was pale and being told by another couple that I was husky... I learned some things about Husky. I learned some things about myself in Hawaii. That's another story. I can't share them all at once or we won't have any material for the future. But other things that don't naturally go well together, children and sugar, or back to peanut butter and pickles. How about cowboy boots and shorts? Or raw and fish. Raw and fish. Motorcycles and deer don't mix. And electricity and water, of course, don't well go well together. But when we're th- talking today about things that do go perfectly together, they're intertwined in such a way that they can't even be or shouldn't be separated. In the spiritual realm, we're talking about truth and love today. Two things that should always go together. Things that should never be separated as we're making a spiritual application to those two words, truth and love, in our lives. They balance each other perfectly and they should always be 
applied together. John wants to communicate that to us as he sets out to have a contrast between truth and error in the epistle of Second John. So most of you know that a while back we had finished a study on the epistle or the letter of First John. Then we took a little bit of a break and went through Psalm 23. And now we're going to come back and pick up with Second John and then, Lord willing, Third John. The primary theme of Second John focuses on truth, though. Truth and love and how those two things go together, but then how they're contrasted with what is false or what is deceptive. And we'll see that as we go through the study. I'm not going to get into too much of an overview. We're just going to jump into it here this morning. We'll take a look at the interplay between truth and love, though, this morning as we begin this introduction to the letter of Second John here in the first three verses. But let's pick up and just jump right into verse 1. Verse 1 begins with, "...the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all those who have known the truth." And why don't we just finish the rest of the introduction so we know what's in front of us today. Because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in truth and love. So let's come back here to verse 1. We see the author of this letter is introduced as the elder, the elder. So that leaves us in a little bit of a quandary in terms of who wrote this book. And I'll tell you that it's my belief that that was John who wrote this book. Now, is that something you can be dogmatic about? Of course not, because he doesn't identify himself in this letter. You're going to find that this isn't something I believe we should get hung up on. But it's nice to know why it is that historically John has had this letter attributed to him as having been the author of it. So we have this salutation or this introduction, this self-designation that is made, the elder, that's a better way of putting it, this self-designation, the elder. And it occurs only in this beginning introduction to Second John and then also in Third John. The elder emphasizes his position and personal relationship with the recipients of the letter. That's the view that most take on this, that that's what is meant by the elder. Those receiving the letter were obviously quite familiar with the author. So when you think of how did this end up being attributed to John, there's a number of different reasons for it, but this in all likelihood is probably one of the stronger reasons. If somebody writes you a letter and they identify themselves with a term that's familiar to them and it's familiar to you, you don't have any question about who wrote the letter. But by using this term, it conveys the respect and authority that he held with them. He wouldn't write a letter to somebody identifying himself as the elder and not have a sense of respect and authority associated with that relationship that he had developed with them. So to say or write to somebody and introduce yourself as the elder, they had to have been quite familiar with him. You wouldn't do that with strangers. So we know that the author is writing to somebody he's intimate with or very acquainted with from a relationship that's been developed through probably a significant amount of time, but that's reading more into it. Now, if you apply logic to that, that he's writing to a group of people that are very familiar with him, and he's very familiar with him, and there's this dynamic where there's respect and there's an authoritative 
aspect to identifying yourself as the elder, then you could start thinking about that a little more and work through it in a logical fashion. So knowing who wrote the letter, the recipients or recipient, we'll get to that in a second, would surely identify the author when passing it along to others. So do we know that this letter was passed along to others? Well, yes, because we have it in front of us in the Word of God. So if it was a private letter kept private and never passed on to others or shared with others, then you and I wouldn't be looking at it today as part of the canon of Scriptures intended to be for our benefit. So the one who was written the letter obviously knew who wrote the letter, and when they passed it on to others, they would have identified the author to those individuals. They wouldn't have just handed them a letter and said, here's something to consider, and not introduce them to who had written it or why it was worth their consideration. So if it was worth their consideration, other believers, it was worthwhile for them to consider those truths that were being passed on, and and they thought the substance of this letter merited some further consideration by a friend or another group of believers. We'll get to that again in a second then it must have come from a source that was trustworthy or respected. And hence, it's starting to make more and more sense as you know that John was an apostle of Jesus Christ, that he wrote the Gospel of John with, I would say, with certainty, because uh, though he doesn't name himself in that Gospel either, the book of Revelation also. So as they pass this letter along, I'm getting a little bit long-winded in this, they would have said, this is who wrote this letter. It's a person of respect, a person who it can be trusted and relied upon. I would ask that you would consider the truths that are found in this letter as well. And they would have passed it to that person. And hence, that person would have passed it to the next person or that church as it happened back in those days. As letters were written, they were, they were shared amongst the other churches because people didn't have access to the Word of God. So as those letters were shared around, apparently this was one of them because it was passed around and preserved and kept. And those who were reading it knew who wrote the letter because one person communicated that to the next person. So come full circle on this argument from very early on as you look at the documents that are still available, the parchments and the manuscripts that are available of the Word of God. From very early on, these letters were all recognized to be written by John. Every existing manuscript attributes authorship to John. So, is that a part of the text itself? No. But in the manuscripts, they'll identify the books with inscriptions. And John is attributed to 2 John, 3 John, 1 John. That's in the manuscripts. There are no manuscripts that exist that don't identify John as the author of this letter. And so, does that mean that that was a part of the original letter? No. Those are copies of a copy of a copy of a copy of those letters. But how did that information end up getting added to the manuscripts? And it's my belief that it's because as people passed this along, they identified who had written it, and they identified that person as John. Now, is that an ironclad argument? No, it's not. Does it affect the truth of what's in the Word of God in any way if you disagree with that? No. Uh, do you? Am I trying to convince you that John wrote this? Not particularly. I'm trying to tell you why this has been attributed to him over the years as having been the author of this letter. Now, there's several other additional reasons to conclude that John is the author, and this is in part why In fact, I I don't know of many, I I didn't read any commentaries that disagree with John being the author of this, but here's some additional reasons to conclude that John is the author. 
Now, some scholars point to the use of the word the versus an in front of the word elder. So it doesn't say an elder, it says the elder. And they've made a bigger argument of that in support of this having been written by John. Reason being that John was the last remaining apostle of Christ. Now, can we get that from the word of God? No. That's going to have to come from church history, church oral traditions that were passed down, that John was the longest and the last surviving apostle of Jesus Christ. And so combined with that and the word the elder, also the date that is estimated between 90 and 95, this is a, a late letter that's being written. So combine all those things, he's the only elder or the one who would identify himself as the elder, the only apostle left alive at the time that this is estimated to have been written. Now again, is any of this, is this chapter and verse from the word of God? No. These are just all things that help us to have a sense of why John is thought to have been the author of this letter, just like First John and Third John. Now, another argument is that the writing style is similar to John's Gospel and First and Third John. They all have a similar writing style. People have looked at it and considered it. I'm not some kind of a scholar that would be able to do that myself or would take the time to do that myself, but they point to the similar tone, thematic development, similar grammar, similar syntax, and similar vocabulary. I would say the vocabulary and the way the words are the way the verses are written, the language that's used, is probably the strongest argument. In fact, many Second John verses, I would say the majority of them, six to eight of the 13 that make up this letter, are almost identical to verses in First John. So if you make the conclusion or come to the conclusion in comparing a lot of the language and the phraseology between John, the gospel, and the book of 1 John, which if you want to hear a much longer message about that, you can go back to the introduction to 1 John. There was two messages on the introduction to 1 John on our website. You can link to those messages about some of those arguments that were made about why the comparisons between 1 John and the Gospel of John and why so many people are convinced that John also was the author of 1 John. So if you're going to accept that John was the author of 1 John, come back full circle now to the amount of duplicate language that's used in Second John. And that's one of the strongest arguments that people use in concluding that John is, in fact, the one being referenced by this phrase, the elder. Now, those of you who hate academic arguments and those kind of details, sorry for that little blip on the elder. But it's estimated that John may have written this from Ephesus around Again, 90 to 95. And that's not something that you can be absolutely certain about, but you'd question or ask, why is the date relevant? Why is the date relevant? Well, one of the reasons that the date is relevant is when you come back to the subject matter. The subject matter focuses on truth and error. It focuses on the the difference between what Jesus taught, which was passed on to the apostles, which was then passed on to the early church, and what is being proclaimed or held or taught by false teachers. That was a theme of 1 John. That's a theme of 2 John. Now, if you're thinking about that progression, we'll get into it a little bit more later, but the canon of Scripture is not complete. The dispersion has already happened. The temple's already been burned to the ground. The Jewish people, again, have been dispersed. The Apostle Paul has already been martyred by about 66 AD or something like that. So by 90 AD, you're talking about a church that still doesn't have a completed scripture in front of them. 
and an early church that is susceptible as the apostles have passed off the scene or are passing off the scene, John being the elder, the last one alive, now they're susceptible to teaching that is a perversion of what was originally taught by Jesus and continued or or supplemented or added to through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaking through other apostles like John, well, like Peter, like Paul, as the canon of the New Testament was being put together. And so that late date, it, it stands to reason that there would have to be this continuing reminder to reject what is false and to cling to what is true. And so I think there's something to that date and why this subject matter had to be tackled or why John thought it was relevant to tackle this. Now, I'll just conclude this section on the elder by telling you that attributing the authorship to John is certainly secondary to recognizing the ultimate author as God. I think you could spend an awful lot of time thinking about or contemplating or arguing about who wrote this letter, but what we know is it's included in God's word. And God said, not one of my words will ever be lost. My word will never perish or fade away. The word of God will endure and stand forever. And so if God determined that his word was worth preserving, the, re- the reality is what difference does it make which human author God chose to speak through as he communicated his truth to his people. Now, there was a specific author, there was a specific audience at the time it was written, and that context is often important or useful in our understanding of what it means or what the focus is all about, but at the same time there was a much greater audience in mind when any word of God was inspired or breathed, God breathed through the human instrument or the human pen that would communicate or write down God's truth. This is God who is ultimately the author of this letter. So I don't want that to be lost. There's no need to be overly fixated or dogmatic about this human instrument when ultimately the source of this truth is God himself. We move on to the next part of verse 1. The elder, so that's the from. We usually say to and then from as we address our letters. But we're going to have here from and then to here. To the elect lady and her children. The elect lady and her children. This doesn't become any clearer as we look at who, who is the elect lady and her children. Now, there's two schools of thought on this. They're really the only two schools of thought that are commonly held in terms of who this refers to as the original recipient of this letter. So, first one is a literal view. It refers to a specific lady and her specific children. If that's the view you take, then verse 13, if you want to glance further down your text, then 13, as he concludes the letter, John would be saying, the children of your elect sister greet you, meaning that there has to be now two elect sisters, one he's writing to, one he's obviously in that person's presence or near that person because they wanted to be included then in the summary of the letter, the conclusion of the letter saying, tell, tell my sister then that I greet her because that's included here. To the, the children of your elect sister greet you. So the elect lady is being greeted by her elect sister in verse 13 if you take the view that this is referring to two specific ladies with two specific 
sets of children because it's not the elect sister that greet her. It's the children of the elect sister. So it's your nieces and nephews greet you would be how you would have to take then verse 13 if you're going to take a literal view on the elect lady and her children here in verse 1. So could that be a possibility? Yes, it could be a possibility. There are other New Testament examples of letters that are written to individuals. Perhaps you can think of them off the top of your head. Okay, we have two letters to Timothy. We have one letter to Philemon. And the other pastoral epistle to Titus. So there's other examples of letters that are addressed to individuals, though I will say this. Philemon, in the address section of it, is written to Philemon, but it's also written to his wife and also to a couple of other individuals that were higher up in the church or leaders in the church and to the entire church that is in your home. So it wasn't specifically limited to Philemon. It was specifically written to the entire church and it was shared with the entire church and that's what makes that letter kind of unique because it's a very personal letter, but it's not very private. It's personal but not private. Consider that. Then the letters to Timothy and Titus, I think, are a little bit unique too in the sense that the letters to Timothy and Titus are written to pastor, pastors who have been mentored by the Apostle Paul, and he's communicating truths to them that would be encouraging to them personally, but also general truths that would be encouraging or necessary to anybody who would be in their congregations. And so we're Second Timothy, we're First and Second Timothy, those two letters to Timothy, and Titus, where they shared with the church family, where they shared with other churches. Answer, yes, or we wouldn't have them in our Bible here today. And so there is this there's this sense, anyway, that those letters weren't particularly private either in the sense that they were intended to be or ended up being shared with others. I digress. But when we think about this being written to a specific lady and her specific children and the reference to her specific nieces and nephews who are responding back to her at the end of verse 13... This view is most appealing due to our preference when it comes to interpreting the Scriptures of taking a literal view of the Scripture. That's the default. A normal, grammatical, literal view. That's the, in terms of a Bible hermeneutic or a method of understanding the Bible, we believe the Bible should be understood in a normal, grammatical, and literal view unless there's some reason to see some other figure or metaphor being pointed to. So two quotes that I like about uh, biblical hermeneutic is, we are to understand the Bible in its normal or plain meaning unless the passage is obviously intended to be symbolic or figures of speech are employed. Now we'll get to it. I believe that's what's happening here. But we are to default to having a normal or plain meaning taking that from the text. And I know one of the sayings about this type of way of understanding the Bible that is often repeated, I was taught it and I've heard it many times in my life, but it says, when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. So many people have gotten off track with the Word of God because they're always looking for figures. They're always looking for symbolism in the Bible instead of just reading it for what it says, taking it at face value, having that grammatical, normal, literal view of the Word of God. So I don't want to make light of that. That's how we normally should understand the Bible is if the plain sense 
of the Scripture makes common sense, then seek no other sense. So then we really come down to, does this plain sense here of taking this in a literal way, does that make common sense? And that's where people have differed. That's where people have come to a differing view to say that to, to take this as referring to a specific lady or being limited to a specific lady versus a body of believers, a group of believers, it doesn't make sense and then there's going to be some arguments for that. So some very good Bible students hold this view, that this is a literal lady and her children and that that would be true of verse 13 as well. And so I'm not, I wouldn't say there's anything wrong with having that view. I think that is, has been a popular view by some. I would say it's a minority view, but it is a popular view and it's held by some very, very good Bible students. Now the second option, of course, is that this is symbolic or it's a figure of speech. That this refers to a church or a group of believers whose identity is not known because it's not mentioned here. I personally lean towards this view. And in this view, elect lady is a metaphorical reference to a church, and the individual members of that congregation are referred to as her children. So the elect lady referring to a church, and her children referring to the individual members within that congregation. Now the nature of the, why why do I lean that way, and why do, I would say this is the majority view, but why do others lean this way? It's because the nature of the instruction seems to lend itself more naturally to a whole church body rather than an individual. Now, that's a conclusory statement. That's an opinion. You might read this letter and say, no, this has a very intimate, private, personal feel to it. It doesn't feel like it's written to a group of believers who would need to be reminded of these truths. Now, anything a group of believers need to be reminded of, every individual needs to be reminded of true, too. And so, Again, this isn't the kind of thing to get hung up on. We're spending probably more time than we even need to on this. I just, some of you like this uh, information and want to know why we reach the conclusions that we do. Well, for me, it's because as I read this, it has more of a feel of warning, a warning that is written to multiple or plural believers, more like you would write to a group of people that you knew than versus one single person that you would write to. Now, another argument is that the plural forms of various words seem to indicate a corporate personality, like a local church, rather than a private individual. You can find those plural words in verses 5, verses 6, especially verse 8, verse 10, verse 12, where he's writing to in a, in a plural form. Now, some, in some ways, the reason it's plural is because he's including himself in that. So if you have two, you have a plural form there, but especially when you look at verse 8, look to yourselves, look to yourselves, that we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. Now, if John just included himself with one elect lady, he could use we, but could he, could he use yourselves? Look to yourselves. Now, you could say, if he's writing to the elect lady and her children, now he could say, yourselves. And so that's not definitive of anything, but that's, I think, one of the places where you see that flavor that it seems to be written to more than just one particular lady and her immediate family. Now, is that something that you should get hung up on? No. The epistle was sent to either one specific person or one church that John was ministering to as part of his apostolic ministry in Asia Minor. So, 
some person or a group of people, it's a group of people just with the elect lady and her children, but a group that goes beyond them to a church family that John had some dealings with are the people who got this originally. Now you have it in front of you. So regardless, as part of the Bible, the letter again is written to believers in general. I don't want that to be lost. And some people really get into trying to uh, fixate on an exact answer to something that can't be known exactly. I'm not saying that this can be known exactly, the author or the recipient, because it can't be. Just an argument about why, to me, this is something that is likely was written by John and it was likely written to, again, in my view, a church, a local, a local church. But the, the, more, the bigger point is that it was written to us. It was written for your benefit, for our benefit. Everything written in the Word of God was for all believers in general. Now, what John wishes to communicate is equally important to both a literal lady and her children or any local church and its members, including us here this morning, as we sit and we ponder these truths that were written so long ago, but they were written for our benefit. We cannot see the Bible as having been written in the abstract to some random group of believers that we have no connection to. It was written to you and I for our benefit. Now, some of the Bible was not written directly to us in the sense that dispensationally it was written to or recorded information about another group of people that we don't have any direct comparison to. But when we talk about church age epistles or church age or great, the age of grace and letters written during that dispensation to church b- believers in the local church. That's us. That continues to be the age that we live in. So, yes, we have to make a distinction when we're looking at some of the information in the Old Testament that was written in a different dispensation, the dispensation of the law. I would say that's the, b- the biggest two distinctions to make is those things that were written to those living under the law, the dispensation of the law, and those that are written in the dispensation of grace. Now, are there other dispensations besides that? Yes. Listen to the fascinating message that Pastor Weefel did about six months ago, maybe four months ago, on dispensations, a great overview of that. But as you're looking at innocence and conscience and human government and you're working your way toward the law, the one that really sticks out there is the law. The law introduced the specific parameters or rules of administration associated with the believers that were living in that day. But then we have a change in dispensation when Jesus comes. He dies on the cross. He introduces the church age. This dispensation that was hidden, it was a valley in the Old Testament that wasn't in view as the Old Testament believers were looking forward. This age of grace, this church age, where there would be, he says, I'm going to put a pause, if you will, on the kingdom, the literal earthly kingdom promise and the restoration of all that was estranged due to original sin in the Garden of Eden and my ultimate plan to make that right for all of eternity as I restore, not even restored in the sense of I make again, make new, a new heaven and a new earth and and an eternal state and eternal kingdom. As, As we work towards that, there's this valley of the church. And I will finish 
my plan as it was laid out in the Old Testament, but we have this hidden mystery that was the church that is the age that we're living in today. Pastor Weefel did such a great job of laying out how we got to this dispensation and then the, the dispensation of the kingdom that will come, the first phase of that being a millennial reign, how there's going to be a tribulation period of seven years, how the Lord will return next. The next event on the prophetic timeline is the return of Jesus Christ. Amen? Praise the Lord. That's the thing that we're looking forward to. That's the blessed hope that we're looking forward to. That's the thing that we're immediately concerned with is that at any day, the return of the Lord is imminent. It could be today. It may be tomorrow, but it could be today. And as I wake up and I think about how am I going to live my life, that's where these warnings that John is laying out to church-age believers, that's us. As we're waiting for the return of Jesus Christ, that's why this teaching is so impactful. But this was written directly to us versus some of the uh, other dispensational truth that was given that was not written directly to us. It was written for our benefit. And you have to make that distinction as you're understanding Scripture. But the future for the Christian is bright. He happens to be in this age of grace having access to truth like no other believer in history has access to, having the revelation of God in front of the completed canon of Scripture, indwelt by the Spirit of God, which was something unique to church age or Age of grace believers in terms of a permanent indwelling by, for every believer. And so we live in this amazing time in human history where we have nothing to be hanging our heads about. We have nothing to be sad about. We have nothing to, to be downcast about. We have everything to be uplifted about as we think about the blessings that we have. Every spiritual blessing for a life of godliness that God has given us to redeem every moment that's in front of us. Not to go around with this sourpuss kind of a person personality or, or perspective where we're always fixated on the things that aren't going right in the world or aren't going right in our lives instead of focusing on how blessed we are to be God's children and to have God's spirit and to have the word of God to direct our thoughts and to direct our lives so that our lives and our days could count for eternity. Now, those days are never going to count for eternity if we don't take in the truths that were written to us, specifically the church-age truth that was written to us in God's Word about the warnings and the reminders that are going to help us to avoid from getting distracted, help us to avoid from getting pushed off course, to be blown about by every wind of doctrine, to come back to God's truth so that we can run the race, we can finish the race, we can be looking at that objective and and pressing toward that mark that's set in front of us of the high calling of Jesus Christ. Man, there's so much to be thankful for. We've gotten off track here on 2 John. But it could have been written to an individual, it could have been written to a local church, but more importantly, it is written to you, directly to you as a church aid believer for your immediate benefit. John wanted his readers to live in the truth. He wanted them to love one another and he wanted them to be on guard against false teachers by adhering to apostolic teaching, especially the teaching about Jesus Christ. So that's kind of an outline of this this letter. Live in the truth, love one another, and be on guard against false teaching. So if you're taking notes, I didn't put any of it on a PowerPoint because frankly I was doing that PowerPoint at around midnight last night. 
And so you're getting very little by way of PowerPoint this morning. This is take notes or listen to it again online. Now, whom I love in truth, what a fascinating thing to move on to after this ambiguity of the elder and the elect lady and her children. He now says, whom I love in truth, what a way to describe the audience that you're writing a letter to. Whoever the elect lady and her children is, sort of irrelevant in the sense that it's you and I, John is as if he's reaching through time to say, whom I love in truth. He's saying, the focus isn't that it's some specific person or some specific group of people. It's that they're fellow believers that he loves. It's as if he's saying to us, this is to you whom I love in truth. Now, notice how this description of affection is stated so directly and personally, right up front. The personal I replaces the impersonal, the elder. So the elder, he identifies himself as that. That's not very personal compared to I love you in truth. That's what he's saying to this audience. I love you in truth. That's why while demonstrated love is impactful, it's very impactful to demonstrate your love for people, so is communicated love. Demonstrated love is impactful, but so is communicated love. And that's something that many people just struggle with. John didn't struggle with that. John says right up front, I'm writing to you whom I love in truth. This is present tense, meaning I love you presently, right now. This is my state of thinking toward you. It's active voice, meaning I'm the one who's in love with you. I love you. And it's indicative mood. He's saying it as a fact. He's stating it as a fact. I love you in truth. And this provides the context for everything that follows. And I don't want that to be lost. Oftentimes that's lost even in, as you're thinking about what Paul's writing or what Peter's writing or what John's. These individuals are people who have a heart for people. These are men who have a heart for people who are writing these letters as inspired by God himself. They love people. That's why they're ministering to people. That's why they're giving up their lives to try to benefit and uplift people and point them back to the truths of Jesus Christ. I love you. I want you to know that. I'm telling you that this morning. I love you. I want you to grow in your faith. I want you to be uplifted by your Savior and by his word. But that's what John is saying to his audience here as well. You could say it this way. I'm reminding you of what follows because I care so deeply for you. That's the flavor of this. So then you have the words here, whom I love in truth. And love and truth are repeated throughout this letter five times each in the first six verses. These are the theme words of this epistle. They are the keys to Christian living individually and corporately. I love you in truth. You see, Christ-centric love is rooted in truth. It must be discerning. It's a discerning love. It's not just a love that never uses any thinking. It's not, it's not a love that never takes any facts in or considers information that's available or that does anything and everything for somebody without any thought about how it would benefit them. It's a discerning kind of a love. It's love that's rooted in truth. That's how Christ's love was, we'll see in a second. So the love of John for this community of believers was founded and it was predicated on God's truth. They're not to be separated. They're not to be separated. <laughs> separated. I'll take a nap later today. 
They're not to be separated. They go together. I love you in truth. It's predicated on God's truth. It's impossible to have proper Christian love apart from truth because Christ is the definition and source of truth. Christ is the definition and source of truth. Let's look at what John has to say in the Gospel of John. Turn to chapter 14, if you will. I'll put them up on the screen too, but I I do want, if you have a Bible, I want you to do some page turning. Same author, at least from my perspective. That's why a lot of this starts to sound very similar. Now, could it be similar if it was just a group of people who had been taught relatively the same things? Would they learn some of the same phrases, start to sound a little bit like each other? Yeah, that's true too. But I think you'll see even in the way John writes in his gospel that there's a lot of similarities here, at least in the themes. But it's impossible to have proper Christian love apart from truth. Because Christ is the definition and source of truth. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, this is Jesus' self-identification. How does Jesus identify? Here you have it. Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, most of you know this verse, and you say, why did you have us turn here? Because we're going to go to other passages in John. Jesus says, I am the truth. One of the I am statements of John. I am the truth, the source of truth. So if Christ's love is applied to any situation, it can't be applied apart from truth because he says, I am truth. I am the truth. So any kind of love that is going to be Christian love, it has to be founded or rooted or grounded in truth because Christ himself was the ultimate source of truth. You see John eighteen thirty seven. Turn in your own Bibles. I'm going to take that back. No cheating. Turn a couple of pages. John eighteen thirty seven. And if you don't have a Bible, here you go. Christ is the source of truth. This is a fascinating passage. Jesus is talking to Pilate shortly before his death. Jesus says this. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Because remember that him trying to usurp Roman authority was one of the arguments that was being made by the Jewish people about why he should be put to death. Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. It's interesting because it's not saying for the cause of being a king I was born. He's going to say the cause here in a second. So for this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world. Now, is that to be a king? No. That, that signifies our purpose. What was his purpose in coming? That I should, be, I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Anyone interested in the truth or identified with truth hears the voice of me, the way, the truth, and the life. My purpose was that I should bear witness to the truth. The source of truth is Jesus Christ. So if we want Christian love or to apply Christian love, it's got to be grounded in truth because Christ was deeply and intensely interested in what was true. It was a part of his very identity. So when you think about what are your primary sources of Christ's truth as a Christian, your primary sources of Christ's truth as a Christian are God's spirit and God's word. So if you're supposed to love in truth, as grounded and rooted in truth, where is your sources of truth? 
Well, God's spirit and God's word. Turn to John 16, verse 13. This speaks to the Christian source of truth. And if we have truth, then our love can be rooted in truth because we have Christ's truth. But this one speaks to God's spirit being our source of truth. John 16, 13. However, when he, how is he referred to? The spirit of truth has come. What will the spirit of God do in your life? He will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. The Godhead is triune and it's unified. God's truth is certainly going to be carried on by the Spirit of God. So if God's Spirit is living inside of you, that's going to guide you into all truth because it's the Spirit of truth. So that's how we understand, in part, what is true. It's not just through the Word of God. It's through the Spirit of God guiding us into all that is true. Turn to verse chapter 17. The other source of Christ's truth is God's word. John 17, 17, Jesus is praying to the Father and he says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So God's word is true. That's our source of truth. So in an ever increasingly false and phony world, I I don't, I guess I even hate to say that it's increasing in, in that sense. Satan has always been described as the father of all lies, the chief deceiver. He's deceived men in a lot of different ways, and sometimes he's actually used God's truth. He's twisted it to, so it's not God's truth anymore, but it's, he, he's taking God's truth, twisting it a little bit, and using that to deceive men. And so even in, even in this country, it wasn't uncommon to, for many, many people to identify as Christian years, years gone by even at the founding of, the, of our country. Almost universally so then, but just go back 50 years, you'd say much greater numbers percentage-wise than now. But were they all God's children? No, there were people who identified as Christians, but they were deceived. How were they deceived? They were deceived by Satan taking these truths and twisting them just enough so that people re, remain just as lost as anybody who didn't know any of this, but yet they knew the words, they knew the songs. You know, friends, when I go to nursing homes to do church services. I've done it a few times now, but when I do it, uh, and I'll be meeting with a group of people who are coming to that because it's billed as a interfaith type of a thing, so they come from all backgrounds. Most of them are, you know, identifying primarily with Lutheranism or, or come from a Roman Catholic background. Very few of them come from a dispensational Bible church background, but they'll come to a service like this. And you know what we do before we start the service? We sing from a hymnal. You know what hymns are in the hymnal? All the same hymns that you're singing here today. Now you're looking at those truths and those words that are communicated that through the lens of what you know about the Word of God and through your understanding of the Word of God. But they're singing the same songs, they know the same words, and they believe they understand what it's talking about, but they're singing it through a different lens. They don't even know the Savior. Very often when you start drilling down and asking them, do you think you can know for sure that you'll go to heaven when you die? Do you believe that salvation is all of what Jesus has done for us and none of what we can do for him? That all of the focus of a proper gospel message is on Christ's death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf and our acceptance of the free gift of eternal life that he offers. That it's not by works of righteousness as we have done, but it's according to his mercy that he saved us. For by grace that you've been saved through faith, it's not of yourself. It's a gift from God. It's not of works, lest anyone 
should boast, do you believe there's anything you have to do in order to go to heaven? Most of them believe there are things that you do need to do. They don't believe in the done principle, that it's not about what you can do for God, it's about what he's done for you. The work's been done. They don't understand that, but you know what? They sing very enthusiastically every word to amazing grace just like we do. Point in all that being that even people who know the right words, words that came from God, not amazing grace that that didn't come from God, um, it might have been inspired by him as God's spirit might have worked through the human uh, author who wrote that, but it's not a part of scripture. You know, there's there's nothing added on to the end of our Bible in terms of the only songs that are authorized. But in any event, they sing those words. Those are words that come from God in a sense of they're inspired by people trying to use Scripture to write those songs. But they don't know him. They don't know him. And so in terms of how confused or off track the world is, uh, I guess if Satan has been effective at his game from the very beginning, he's always been equally effective. That was a long road just on the idea that people, we, we sometimes get this sense that the world is more lost now than it ever was, and I don't even necessarily know biblically that that's true. In any event, we come back to the truth, the source of this truth. One of them was God's word. One of them was the spirit of God. That's how you can know God's truth. So in the truth, I love you in the truth, it likely also focuses on the specific content of the gospel message. So when he says, I love you in the truth, he's saying, I love you with a shared faith that we have in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the primary truth that John is interested in, both in his gospel and also here as he's writing to these believers. When I say, I love you in the truth, meaning we're both in the truth, what does he mean by in the truth? Well, yes, all apostolic teaching, all biblical teaching in general, but he's more specifically focused on the attacks being made about Jesus Christ, which is what he'll get into later in this letter. Jesus Christ, the truth of who he is and what he's done, that's what's under attack. It's not general truth about the Old Testament or the nation of Israel or Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. It's not attacks about the exodus from Egypt. It's attacks about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Most of those individuals that are false teachers would accept the teachings of the Old Testament, but they would not accept Jesus Christ. They would not accept the truth of who he was and what he had done for a lost and dying world. His permanent solution to man's problem with sinfulness. That's what they wouldn't accept. And so when he says, I love you in truth, he's mainly referring to the truth of accepting what Jesus Christ has done for them. So love grounded in truth for fellow believers That's supposed to be universal. We see that in the next part of our verse here. So, I love you, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. It's not just I who love you. That's what also has this flavor of he's writing from probably one location with a group of believers there, just like Paul often is writing from one location with a group of believers. And he's saying, it's not just I who love you. I love you, but so does everybody else who has known the truth. See, love for fellow believers, that's supposed to be a universal principle. That's what he's going to get into in a little bit later into this letter. So everyone who knows the truth loves you. Why? Because we're all of the truth. We're brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And knowing the truth, it's, in, it's like saying others of like precious faith. All those who have known the truth, all those who are of like precious faith, they also love you. And it's perfect tense. They've known the truth. 
It was a past completed action at a point in time. They heard the truth. They became convinced to put their trust and confidence in the truth. So at that point, they were said to have known the truth, but then it had enduring results in the present in their life. And that's expanded on further in the verses to come, how they've known the truth and how that should impact their way of going about Christian living going forward. Now, the second verse says, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. So I love you in truth, and so does everyone else who has known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. It's written as a summary phrase to explain the basis for loving fellow believers. Truth is the motivation as well as the context of all Christian love. This word abides can be translated as resides, lives, take up permanent residence. So it's because of the truth truth which lives in us and will be with us forever that we can love in truth all of those that are of like precious faith. So the truth lives in us and will be with us forever forever. Now you think about that and how that impacts our view toward one another, but also think about just that statement. The truth lives in us because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. What a statement. How could truth permanently live or reside in us? Now, some say that this refers to the body of doctrine, including the teaching of Christ, that would abide forever corporately within the church. And Jesus does reference his words abiding in the apostles. Jesus says that to his, he says, if my words abide in you. So he talks, that concept is there that the word of God could abide in, in us, being now the witness for Jesus Christ to communicate his truths. Peter refers to the word of God which lives and abides forever. So God's word can be viewed from that perspective of living and abiding forever. So is that what he's talking about here? In the, in the context, the doctrinal truth that John will reinforce in the next few verses, including his instruction to love fellow believers, it makes it possible that the reason that he's connecting back to this idea that not only I love you, but also everyone who knows the truth loves you, and that's in part based on the truth which abides in us. If that truth was from Christ, then one of the things that Christ taught was that we needed to love one another, and John's going to get into that in the very next verses. So that could be what that's referring to. I actually believe it's better understood as referring to the power source behind any love for one another that a believer could have towards a fellow believer. It's the Holy Spirit that abides forever within every believer. So the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Here's one of the reasons I believe that if you look at John 14, 16 through 17, it says, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. Now, how was he described? The Spirit of truth. So the truth which abides in us, to me, connects very closely back here to this reference to the spirit of truth that's going to abide with you forever. You notice how these words and this language sounds very similar. And so it's because of the truth which abides in us forever that all believers have a shared love for you like I have a shared love for you is basically what John is saying. 
You see, while God's word will endure forever, there is no guarantee that it will endure within the church. In fact, in 2 Timothy, we know from chapter 4 that for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. There's a time come even within the church where they won't endure sound doctrine. And so while it's true that you could take the view that it's the truth that has been communicated previously that's abiding or remaining in us, I think the better way to take that is it's because of the word of truth, the spirit of truth that lives inside every believer. That's how a Christian has the capacity to love other Christians in truth the way that God intends or wants them to. So then we come to verse 3, which though it's long, it's not a long explanation. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. And we have truth and love again. So after the formalities of addressing the letter with the equivalent of to and from, John now is going to give his actual greeting. And this is the greeting. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ further described as the Son of the Father because that's under attack. The deity of Christ is under attack. He's going to get into that. And then he again ends with in truth and love. So grace, it represents the customary greeting exchange between Greeks when they would approach each other. The word carries this idea of favor. Peace, it represents the customary Jewish greeting. It's true to this day, shalom. So grace and peace were customary. And then mercy is a little bit rarer. You have that in the, Paul uses that in the pastoral epistles where he adds mercy to the list. But here you have John adding mercy and it refers to God's steadfast love. We've covered that recently in our look at Psalms, and tender kindness that are demonstrated through his compassionately meeting our every need. It also can include a concept of withholding deserved punishment. So God's compassion and love are in view there. So God's grace, mercy, and peace, now they will be with you. It speaks to absolute certainty or confidence. This isn't wishful thinking. John is saying God's grace, mercy, and peace will be with you. Not May they be with you. He's saying they will be with you. That, I think, is very neat because it's not as common as you look at some of those greetings that are found in the letters that are in the New Testament. It's they will be with you. What a confidence you can have there. God's blessing is automatically bestowed on his children. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that you automatically will appropriate practically the blessings that are available to you. But God's grace, mercy, and peace, they're automatically available to you all of the time. It's guaranteed. And so it's a question of, will I trust him enough, get my eyes on him enough to appropriate practically those blessings in my life? But what a nice way to start or introduce a letter or to greet somebody. Now, from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, that just indicates the source of these amazing blessings. Now, one of the things that I thought as I considered that why he would put there, he would remind them constantly that these blessings are from above. Every good thing is from above. Well, why do we need to be reminded of that? Because we naturally start looking for good things in other places. We're so goofy. We're we're so foolish that we go through life knowing that every good thing is from above, but yet searching for the good things in the world around us. The world has nothing to offer us. It's a wasteland. But yet we're looking for God's goodness in a place that can't be found. 
The only way God's goodness could be found in the world around us is because of believers that are in the world around us and because God lives in them and is there's a potential through his spirit for his goodness to be manifest in their lives. That's the only way you could see God's goodness in the world at all. Other than creation itself, could get into that. But even that, even what you're looking at in creation itself is a sin-damaged, sin-cursed creation. It's still amazing. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. We still can be in awe. I can share many stories of being in awe of God's creation. I was scuba diving on our trip and I was scuba diving with turtles the size of human beings. I mean, if that doesn't just blow your mind. Just be in awe of him. But it all comes from him. So the the question is, why are you looking for it elsewhere? Jot that down. Write that on your hand. The blessings come from above. They come from him. Why are you looking for it elsewhere? Say that to myself. Why am I looking for it elsewhere? Why? It's not to be found elsewhere. It can only be found in him. What a great little introductory blessing to have here. Or, yeah, it is a blessing, but it's ultimately God's blessing that he's communicating. Now, in truth and love, there we have it again. God's blessing, though motivated by his love, his blessings are never given without being in accord with his character or consistent with his character. God is the God of truth. So his loving blessing and bestowment of favor in our lives is always consistent with his truth. The two are joined together in this prepositional phrase indicating that neither is a separate reality from the other. It's in, there's our preposition, in truth and love. They're conjoined. They're to, they can't be separated. There can, neither, there can neither be divine love apart from divine truth, nor is divine truth separate from divine love. You can't separate divine love from divine truth. And it's just an amazing thing that John brings out so strongly in this letter, as strongly as you can find it anywhere else, that God's divine truth is always going to be paired with God's divine love because God is uniform. God isn't separate. God is consistent. He's homogenous all of the time. And so his attributes and his characteristics, they always go together. So we never see these two things separated because God is not separate. For a vital Christian, a Christian life that has vitality to it, truth and love must be kept in balance. That's what John's trying to say here. What an introduction. They should always exist together. They're both a reflection of God's character. They're both produced in the yielded Christian by the Spirit of God. So I love you in truth. I hope you can say that about your thoughts about other believers because that's what John introduces this fun little letter by doing. I love you in truth. But as you think about truth and love, they go together. And may we keep them that way. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for this time we could spend in your word. Thank you that you're so faithful to direct us in your truth, to have given us your truth, to have given us your spirit, the spirit of truth to help us discern what is right from wrong, not through our own intellect, not through our own efforts, but by depending on your spirit to lead and direct and enlighten us and illuminate our thinking. And as you illuminate our thinking through your word and through your spirit, pray that we would be seeing, we would be willing to then be directed and led by you, that we would see, taste and see that you're good. We would see that only when you're leading is our life going to have any value 
It's only going to have any purpose or it's only going to have any contentment or peace or joy associated with it in any lasting kind of a way is when you're the one who's directing and leading and undertaking. Pray that we would see that. We would take ourselves out of the equation, that we would put all of the focus and all of the spotlight on you and that you would receive all the glory. Pray that what was said this morning would be encouraging to those who are here and that you would have been lifted up by all of it. In Jesus' name, amen.